0: You're listening to the Barcode Podcast with your host, Chris Glanton, serving cybersecurity straight up with no chaser. Let's hit the
1: bar and grab a drink. Big Tone, what's up, my man? Uh, hey, Chris. The real tone is off today. I'm deep fake Tony. You can call me phony. Dude, I couldn't even tell. Barcode is stepping up their tech game in 2021, I see. For sure, man. We installed IoT beer taps for Power Flow Control, voice-activated remotes, beer mat sensors, and I even pour using a smart jigger now. Just cause I can. How about I connect you with a Long Island IoT? Sounds risky, but we'll hook it up. I got you. Using my smart jiggers, a half ounce of vodka, a half ounce of rum, a half ounce of gin, a half ounce of tequila, a half ounce of triple sec, one out of sweet and sour mix shake it pour into a glass of ice and fill it to the top with soda this is an amazing drink i need to start investing in deep fake bartenders as a service now, definitely a wise investment bro that's just my opinion until we get those really smart ai guys in here then I'm sure they'll find a way to figure us out. No doubt. Okay, man, thanks for the drink. I'm off to catch up with the security expert. He's gonna be meeting me here any second. Cool. All right, man, we'll see you next round.
0: Today I'm here with Grayson Milbourne, Director of Security Intelligence at OpenText. Grayson, welcome to Barcode. What's going on? Hey, Chris. Uh,
2: not too much. Happy to be here.
0: So for those that don't know, OpenText acquired Carbonite and WebRoot about a year ago. Would you mind telling us how long you've been with the organization and also a bit more about your role at OpenText?
2: Yeah, absolutely. Um, so uh, I work for uh, this SMB and consumer division of OpenText, which uh, includes Carbonite and WebRoot. So WebRoot was actually acquired by Carbonite uh, at the end of 2018. And and then in 2019, Carbonite and WebRoot were acquired by OpenText. But I have a long uh, history with WebRoot. I worked for that company since 2004. um, And I've spent much, much of my career as a malware analyst, and eventually kind of climbed through the ranks and became the director of uh, our threat research team at WebRoot and have since moved on uh, into a product role where I focus on ensuring our products are capable of providing efficacy against the most recent types of threats that we're observing in the threat landscape. Uh, I also do a lot of thought leadership and uh, hence why I'm on this podcast. I like to talk about cybersecurity. Uh, I like to educate people and uh, so this is a great vehicle to do such.
0: Yeah, man, for sure. And I appreciate you bringing that knowledge into the bar. I have to ask you about the impact of COVID on business. How has it affected you and your typical day-to-day workflow?
2: Yeah. So I I personally I did a lot of travel um, you know, before COVID. And and through that I also worked from home a lot. And so I, I was already personally in a kind of a 50 50 in the office, out of the office split. And so now I'm just 100% out of the office and, and I guess I'm somewhat fortunate in that I have a home office. And so uh, working remotely for me hasn't been that much of a challenge. If anything, I know my wife loves it a lot more since I'm always around and uh, our pets as well. Uh, you know, from a a company perspective, um, you know, being in software is actually a pretty great thing for working remotely. Compared to several other businesses that, uh, you know, really require more of that in-person, you know, availability to operate. Uh, so, you know, it was actually pretty surprising within about two weeks, um, OpenText, which has uh, north of 15,000 employees globally transitioned to a a work from home to where we had like 97% of our workforce, um, working from home. And of course, like with how bad COVID is in the United States right now, uh, we're still in that, you know, almost everybody is working from home but but ultimately you know that that's actually been pretty good for business because well we did close several offices and i think i i'm sad about that and i know several of them are not planning to reopen but i also then think about you know did we really ultimately need those offices and uh certainly i like the the person to person uh connection and, and i think you know zoom and teams and other platforms that give you you know a piece of that <clears throat> but what i'm really looking forward to is you know, getting beyond the the pandemic. And even if offices don't reopen, uh, I know at least OpenText, and I expect other businesses to sort of do similar, but <clears throat> we're going to reinvest some of those uh, savings into offsite get togethers. So, you know, we still have that, that social connection that, you know, is also very important in, you know, building and gaining trust and flushing out ideas that, you know, often just don't happen during you know, the scheduled work meetings.
0: Yeah, it's very hard to translate that over a virtual meeting. There's a human element there that, you know, just can't be replicated.
2: Right. Like the conferences and, and hence this podcast, you know, I think, you know, of course, going to the conferences for the content is, is the primary goal. But I would say very close behind that is, is the network uh, building and, you know, going to the after parties and, you know, just having the social element of things. I mean, come on, we're human. That's part of what we really love about life. And uh, when you can blend work and pleasure together like that, I think that's where real success
0: happens. Yeah, no doubt. So for those organizations that plan to continue the work from home structure post covid what are some of the risks they should be primarily focused on
2: yeah so i mean i think one of the things that we're we're not going to see once the vaccines are out and you know we're we're largely over the pandemic is that We're just not going to go back to a a 90 plus percent in the office presence. Um, and I know from Tech's perspective, they're aiming somewhere around a 50-50 split, um, and having offices for the things that we need it for, but, you know, not requiring employees who could easily work from anywhere, uh, having to come into the office. Uh, and and so certainly with COVID, we, we saw a rapid, I, you know, I feel we were actually moving this way already. And and what, what COVID did is I think it fast forwarded us about maybe five or 10 years. Um, but, Pretty much overnight, most companies had to become uh, software companies to some respect. They had to start supporting like a VPN for their employees to connect to their home resources. Uh, and so basically, like the home became the new perimeter. And so for uh, businesses to secure you know, their, their workforce, they've had to scramble quite a bit to uh, provide that. And I think even today, we are, we're pretty far away from businesses feeling very confident that their work-from-home employees are as secure as those... Who that would be in the office. So, I think there's a lot of challenges there. And I think one of the big ones is, is just personal devices versus managed devices. And, and it's easy to use your managed devices when you're at the office. You have your, your desktop PC there. Uh, or, you know, I did a lot of traveling. So, I had a, a, a work laptop, uh, which is great. It was small, but there's no way that I want to work day in and day out on my little 13 inch laptop. And so, you know, at home, I have my personal PC and I, you know, I, we <clears throat> have surveyed lots of, um, our customers to kind of get a gauge on this. And it looks like north of 60% of, of work from home employees are using their personal devices to then connect to corporate resources. Um, and this is often done through a VPN and then a remote desktop connection. And, and, and again, just kind of what our data shows is, I mean, and this shouldn't come as a surprise to anybody, but, uh, consumer devices obviously see considerably more infections than their business counterparts. We use our personal devices differently. Uh, Managed devices have, you know, all of the security that the IT team wants to protect those devices. And so really one of the big things we saw was that as work from home employees started installing VPN softwares to connect into their, their managed or their, their corporate networks, you know, those devices were already infected. You know, they, they didn't have that same level of, Uh, updates and being kept current with important patches. Uh, And so they ultimately just really introduced a, a soft point for access into corporate networks.
0: Interesting. So let me ask you then, do you think BYOD will become more relevant then because of that?
2: Yeah, and so this is kind of where I'm expecting industry to pivot and provide solutions to solve this problem. And and I think it's you know when we first started thinking about BYOD, it was I think it was like largely thinking about mobile phones and how how do we kind of bridge this gap of the risk of mobile devices. But now I think really like D is is my PC more than it's maybe my cell phone, Um, just because I can do so much more on my personal device. And so I think it's like how do we manage personal devices? And I think there's lots of options. Obviously, Windows provides lots. The flexibility here, um, and you could have several domain accounts on a single PC. And I think it's just you know having a conversation with uh, remote workers and, and saying that hey, you know, we want to be flexible. We're not we, we don't want to make life working from home worse. Um, but if you have a device you prefer to use, you know, let's just go through the uh, the you know creating an account on that device that we can then at least install managed security and and provide some data protection so that you reduce that risk of of compromise through providing flexibility of using, you know, preferred device.
0: Right. And depending on the end user, it could be a foreign concept for them. So you also need to provide that clear communication and deliver the message of that initiative properly.
2: Yeah, and I mean, I think users largely are also concerned about privacy, and they, you know, they, the reason that their personal devices see more infections isn't solely uh, because of the security that's on those devices. Uh, you know, we use our personal devices however we want, and and when at work, are using a work device. We're pretty much focused on, you know, this is a work device, so let's use it for that purpose.
0: Yep, yep, absolutely. So strictly from a home user perspective, and concern for their own privacy while being connected to their corporate network via VPN, what controls could they implement that their organization uh, may not specifically point them to?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think it's just having the conversation initially and, and just explaining that, you know, we are concerned about cybersecurity risk. And, and I think certainly 2020 has already given us, um, you know, some 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 great reminders of how important um you know, cybersecurity is to protecting business IP, um, protecting business assets. Uh, and so I don't think most employees should be that surprised to be engaged by their IT team to have this conversation. But I, I think that's kind of like the first step is saying, Hey, let's, let's bridge this gap. Um, you know, let's, let's make sure that everybody's staying secure here and, and we want to help. And, and it's not a privacy thing. It's, um, it's a security thing. <clears throat> and of course, those things are kind of on opposite ends of the spectrum. But I think with transparency of, of what you're, protecting that your employees should feel confident and of course if the employee doesn't want to allow you to manage their personal device then you know you can say that hey well we have a policy that you need to use a managed device for you know for example for connecting to corporate network resources so I, I think it's um it's a conversation that that is just going to become the new normal because you know working from home has so many advantages and um, as businesses see that employees are happier um, but they have more free time they have more flexibility and ultimately I think it also it opens up the job pool of, of of candidates, and I know a lot of businesses uh, shed some employees in this past year and um, are really looking forward to regaining some of that headcount and, and rebounding. Um, and, and when we think about you know relocating and some of the complexities that go into finding the right job, I think working from home really um, or working from anywhere, as I like to call it, gives us that flexibility to you know not need to relocate and still be able to be effective. Um, so I think overall, I mean, these this is kind of just. We're in the very beginning of defining this new uh, procedure for how we, you know, connect to our corporate environments. And, and I think one thing maybe to pivot on here is the home network. Um, you know, we've talked so far a lot about devices, but I think the device challenge in some ways to me seems easier to solve with you know software solutions and um, account creation that that's specific to the task. But then when we look at the home network, um, there's so much more diversity and complexity. I think there. So I think that's kind of where I'm, I'm excited to see industry kind of pivot and, and attempt to solve that home network security challenge, which I think also creates a great opportunity to educate the employee base. And, you know, instead of users looking at their home network router as a black box, um, maybe getting familiar with that piece of hardware and, and understanding you know, what it does and, and what it provides you as far as visibility into what's going on in your home. Which again is even more important nowadays when almost every new device that you buy for your house, whether it's an appliance or a TV or a receiver or uh, anything that pretty much requires electricity, you know, nowadays comes with an internet connection and the ability to remotely manage it, which, which is really cool. But, you know, most of these things are never built with security even in mind as an afterthought sometimes and you know because of this we've seen you know lots of iot botnets and, and things that are able to you know easily propagate and taking advantage of firmware that's exploitable um and then you know what ultimately makes me nervous is so many of these apps uh, or iot devices are connected to your mobile phone through an app that they have you install uh and again the security and thoughtfulness about that you know is 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 often not there and so what we see is you know, very poorly secured uh, IoT controlling apps. And then when you think about that device, it's on the network, uh, you know, it knows passwords to get on the network. It, it it's, it's aware of the other devices on the network. And it ultimately just, again, it creates like a soft spot for uh, exploitation.
0: Yeah, I agree. IoT is developing at warp speed. What developments do you see happening with IoT in 2021?
2: Yeah. So, I mean, I think IOT security has been on the radar for quite a while. Uh, and I, there's definitely no question that consumers, uh, you know, love these devices. Um, there's, I, I see that only accelerating, uh, and ultimately just in, in the ways in which we're able to add technology to, uh, things that maybe didn't have them before. Um, and so one of the areas that we're seeing a lot of that is in, is in wearables and smartwatches and smart health devices. And, you know, okay, it's cool to be able to track my light bulbs and, and turn those off remotely, but, all of a sudden I have all this biometric data that's, you know, being uploaded to a cloud and, you know, it has a, a very intimate knowledge and awareness of myself. And so I look at that as something that really absolutely has to be security forward. Um, as we move forward with you know, benefiting from these devices, yes, it's great to, to be able to track this information, but <clears throat> security in that space is, is critical. Uh, and so there's, there's several t- the ways in which we can go about this. Um, you know, one of the things I like is, is having standards and, you know, I, I've been an advocate for a security standard for IOT devices. So it's kind of like something like Energy Star for your, your refrigerator or your, your you know, heater so that you know that it, uh, you know, it, it takes into account energy savings. So, you know, if you had something else that was a, a security standard protocol that ensured that the devices were able to auto update, that they took proper uh, security practices in place uh, and, and had like a, an, an entity to validate that. Would then, you know, as a consumer, I would probably, you know, maybe shell out a couple extra bucks uh, to buy an IoT device that I knew uh, cared about protecting my data.
0: Definitely, it could be an IoT security verification check.
2: Right. I mean, especially when we start getting into really sensitive data. Like, I'm sorry, but I, I just wouldn't trust wearing uh, a biometric device that that uploads data to a cloud that you know, it, like so much of compromise occurs because of our of our trust of somebody else to do it right. Um, And so when I, you know, how many times have, has a password of yours been hacked because, or leaked because the website that was holding it stored it improperly and got compromised, right? Like this, this is not an uh, a rare occurrence. And, you know, with biometric data, I think that that's something that, you know, personally, I, well, obviously I work in this industry, like privacy is very dear to my heart. And, uh, you know, I, I love the benefit of technology, but uh, at the same time, I think, you know, we have to be careful about the trade-offs we make.
0: Very true. And yes, a verification system is much needed.
2: Yeah, we'll have to see where it goes. But I think like something like that is going to be needed. Uh, and it's also, I think, attractive to the consumer. So that often that combination typically leads to something
0: happening. Yeah, absolutely. So what other challenges do you see us facing within the next year?
2: Yeah. So, oh man, after 2020, I'm, I'm well, I am really looking forward to 2021. <laughs> so um, but, but I think it still in, introduces a lot of new challenges. And based on what we've seen so far in 2020, uh, the fact that we're not past this pandemic you know, there are several things that I expect to see, and one is that the the skills gap is going to continue to widen, and that's unfortunate. And I think this is a, a skills gap that has been widening for uh, several years, uh, actually nearly a decade. And, and I think that's a challenge, and especially it's it's exacerbated by you know all of these companies now having to have an IT department or, or hiring an MSP to provide that that remote connectivity for their their workforce. So you know that creates an opportunity. I think in <clears throat> whenever you have a skills gap, of course. Maybe you know, we want to train and, and, and build that back up. Um, but it also creates a great opportunity for, uh, industry to create solutions to help solve that gap. And I think, you know, uh, WebRoot, for example, has been in that business for a long time and, and many of our, you know, our focus is on, on supporting those, uh, SMBs and MSPs with easy to use solutions. You know, we primarily play in the endpoint protection game. One of the emerging technologies for the last several years has been um EDR solutions or what I would call maybe like XDR. Because uh, it doesn't necessarily just need to be focusing on the endpoint. Um, really for things to be effective, you have to have that cross-platform visibility. Um, so being able to understand uh, endpoint type of like miter attack framework event type of data, but not only just looking at the endpoint, but looking at cloud and uh, looking at network to ensure and even mobile, you know, to basically be able to uh, tie the dots together for when something has really slipped through. And unfortunately, I think the challenge with these solutions, like to date, has been the volume of event data. And so I think what we're really looking at is how do we, how do we make sure that when an event takes place that, that might be suspicious, that we don't you know, overwhelm those who are responsible for, for monitoring it and taking, uh, or, or controlling that, that software. So, I mean, if you, if you need a dedicated SOC team to, to manage your EDR, you know, is that necessarily solving your problem? And maybe for enterprises, it is. But I think, you know, the b space is also um, heavily under focus. And so, uh, I expect to see you know, improvements in these technologies that, that really reduce the number of false positives. Uh, and then the R side of like response. And, and I think R has always been very under, uh, undersold in these solutions. Um, you know, they're like, Hey, these are the problems, but the, how do I respond to it has often been neglected? And I think largely because these solutions are focused at the enterprise level and they expect to have an IT team or SOC team that uh, knows how to respond. Um but I think when we start looking at the lower market, you know, these are solution providers. Like MSPs don't want to have to write the response plan. Uh, and I think these solutions are going to continue to mature so that we'll see better, better response, like an all encompassed solution that says, okay, it looks like you may have been compromised. Uh, you know, here's what we can tie together. Here's likely when it happened, here are the resources that you need to validate. Uh, and kind of giving like a playbook for um how to uh, respond to security incidences.
0: Yeah, that would be nice. Let me ask you about cybersecurity spend or tool investment. What would be your advice to organizations in terms of what their top priority should be?
2: Yeah, so I think like I have lots of opinions, I think, in this answer. Um, you know, one thing that I think is, is far underserved for our businesses, uh, employees is just education. And then when I think about like when I on an annual basis, I have to go through so many different mandated uh, training courses like for um, compliance. And and it's silly to me that there's not like a cybersecurity compliance <laughs> uh, standard, largely because you know the users are often the the target, right? So if if they get tricked into uh, clicking on something or, or take a phone call and, and get tricked into doing something, that's how so many attacks begin. So I think one of the things I like to see more of is is just educating the workforce about the threats that they face um, and, and keeping it current. Not to like pitch our products, but you know one of the things we invested in several years ago was. Um, was kind of leaving an effort in this and we have like a security awareness training platform um, that allows you to send out phishing attacks against your 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 employee base and has lots of templates that we we keep very current with um <clears throat> examples from the wild so you know, we're in a constant process of you know, discovering these types of uh uh email based threats and, and phishing attack tactics uh, in the wild and then very quickly turn them into templates that uh, companies can use uh, and what's actually interesting about it is you know now that we've had this service out for uh, over three years now, we can look at our 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 customer data again just to kind of gauge the the efficacy. And so you know, there's one way to look at the efficacy is in that when we start sending out phishing simulations against like a business, um you know initially people are clicking about thirty percent of the time. um and after they've done maybe four or five trainings, so we recommend doing it like on a monthly basis, just like a little you know stress test against your employee base. But after like three or four times, click rates drop below 10%, um, you know, which shows that employees are getting smarter. Um, but how does this really ultimately, you know, equate into the, the bigger picture? And when we look at our customer base, for example, that, that uses our security awareness training and our endpoint solution, they see 90% less infections, 90% less infections than, Mm -hmm. you know, an equal part of our customer base that doesn't use security awareness training. And it's like, for me, it's like, man, if you could just take a 90% reduction because you, you invested a little bit in educating, your workforce about because I mean the threat landscape moves very quickly. You know we see you know within minutes of of a news story being broken, you're going to find uh, sites that are going to index uh, quickly to the top of Google searches um, that are, that are malicious. Um, and, and then we also see it seasonally. So right now we're going through open enrollment and um, uh, for for health insurance and things like that in the United States. And so you know we see every year like clockwork uh, you know email that. That attempts to take advantage of that. And they know it's difficult. Spam filters struggle to, uh, to block things that are, that are very, very similar to normal email. So I guess I would start with education, right? I think, I think that that's the, uh, one of the least expensive and most effective ways to improve cybersecurity. And it really also fits along with this working from home, right? Like let's reinvest in making sure that we're all a little bit more cybersecurity aware, you know, understand how our routers work, understand the importance of, you know, uh, clicking yes update and restart and um you know monitoring your browser making sure your browser's up to date. I mean it's not a very hard list of things to do. But I think if you go through it, it really makes a huge difference in security.
0: Yep. So tooling's important but it's not the silver bullet.
2: Yeah. Yeah I mean absolutely I wouldn't only rely on on education. But I, I think you know MITRE's attack framework has been out for a couple of years now and I think it, it does a great job of showing all of the the creativity and right like that that document continues to grow as we see new evasive tactics used by threat actors. Um, and I think it's, it, it provides a good framework for you know understanding some of the, the critical points to have visibility. Um, so especially with things like RDP, uh, we see RDP as a entry point for compromise so often. Um, and if you fish the right person's credentials and you can get in, you know we add, and this is like the use case we see often is that you know they'll eventually get to a domain admin account and then they'll disable all of the antivirus, they'll disable all of the backup solutions, they'll do the reconnaissance and steal the data, and then they'll deploy you know, with a policy update across the entire network all at once, uh ransomware um and you know that could all be prevented with stricter remote desktop protocol access um enforcement. um so you know obviously two f a is one thing that's uh, important to do. Uh, and I'll just touch on that one real quick because <clears throat> one of the things that we've seen again improperly done is is two FA is, is is an effective uh, strengthening tool for authentication, but it needs to be device separated. And what I mean by that is that, like on my uh, my home PC, if I connect to our VPN, um, I could install the the second factor authentication token generator on my same PC, or I could install it on my phone. And, and it's like, I needs to be on my phone, right? Because if my device were compromised and somebody can then just see my, my pin, all of a sudden, if they were able to remote access my machine, they, they could then make that same connection without, you know, needing my, my, my personal device to get that pin. So it's like using 2FA properly and effectively. You know, the other thing with RDP is, is just setting the uh, access limitations, uh, and, and access. Um, restrictions. So that if you, you know, we see like RDP was developed without any sort of brute force uh, mitigations uh, by default. And so, you know, setting accounts to lock after like two or three missed password attempts, um, and also just having visibility into where do people connect from. And so there should be some patterns that look, you know, normal, um, and, and then should stick out if um, you know, somebody's connecting from, you know, normally from this IP range, and all of a sudden, they're somewhere else. So th- there's lots of little things you can do to, to improve um, remote security. But I think yeah, that's a big one that, that we ask our customers to really try to lock down.
0: So cybercrime as a service is expected to rise at an unprecedented rate this year. What are your thoughts on that?
2: Yeah, absolutely. So, so I mean, one of the biggest things that we see, so there's several big botnets that are out there, um, but one of the, the ones that's been the most resilient to take down is called uh, Emotet um and and it's been around for 5 plus years now um and initially it started off as um as a, as a botnet that really just aimed to collect information about <clears throat> the devices that it had infected and it's sort of matured through its success and its ability to uh, propagate um that they they now operate as like uh, yeah exactly cybercrime as a service um and so it's it's easy enough to to get in touch with these guys and to request the ability to deploy uh, a malware and so typically this is just done through providing access remote access to uh compromised devices um and, and they certainly work with some uh groups much more than others but you'd be surprised how inexpensive some of these credentials can be um and so what will happen is is basically there's different levels of like uh, hacking organizations you have very well organized groups all the way down to you know your script kiddies and those you know teenage hackers who are you know maybe trying just to uh to explore more than really to try to create harm but you often start with trying to gain access and so you know, gaining access, uh, can, can sometimes just be as easy as, is purchasing credentials. Uh, remote access protocol will get you right in. Um, and, and then basically you can kind of go from there. Um, and depending on what you see in that environment, um, you know, we see either ransomware or, uh, in many cases, um, you know, if there's not a lot of value or not expected value, uh, we just see remote access trojans and, and things that collect data. Um, or other times we'll see, you know, financial based trojans and, and things that look to uh, collect or interfere with the browsing experience. But yeah, I, I don't know. It's it's uh it's one of these things that that we see still very effective using social uh, engineering as as a tactic to to propagate. And so you know, for Emotet as an example, um, typically starts as a spam email. Uh, it has an attachment, and you know, we see a lot of like uh, right now using like you know exploiting UPS and FedEx and all the delivery services as their bait because here we are close to Christmas, and and you know they know that people are hey did somebody send me something? Do I got to click on that tracking link? Like should I open this document? and so they're pretty effective at getting people to to basically install the fec- infection and then once it's installed it uh you know it g- gathers information other email contacts and uh and basically then sends itself on um and propagates that way um but but through that i mean they have you know millions of infected devices and um you know those can be used again for like a ddos for example and and this is really more i think for the the o- larger organized crime uh, syndicates that you know have more resources to uh maybe uh, launch a DDoS attack at somebody. I mean, oftentimes DDoS attacks don't really, they're not really done for profit. They're really more done for uh, disabling something or, or taking something offline as a, uh, you know, there's, there's
0: several reasons to do that. Exactly. It could just be someone out for vengeance. Yeah. So what's your take on ransomware at the moment? You see these extremely advanced ransomware variants, you know, now you have one that will send the ransom node to your printer.
2: Yeah. So, you know, I think um, I've been following ransomware for a very long time. I mean, I remember, you know, the early crypto lockers and, and even before that, uh, you know, really we, what we saw was uh, it was fake AV and AV that would try to tell you you're infected. And, and just through this evolution, you know, we've seen a lot of tactical changes and, you know, certainly over like the past five years since you know, kind of the dawn of crypto locker and all the evolution since then. Um, we've seen so many different things like, you know, the free file, uh, to show that it works, um, you know, tech support. Uh, most recently I, I even saw cold calling. And so, um, uh, I forget the, the particular ransomware variant, but, you know, they, they would start calling people, uh, or organizations that they had infected, <laughs> to over the phone, try to convince them to uh, pay the ransom. And so every year, you know, we, what we see often is a, a rebranding. So you know, there's probably north of two hundred different named variants of mal- uh, of ransomware. And it's it's probably a bit higher than that by this point. And so, you know, rebranding is just a tactic to to make yourself look new and different. Um and often through that process, um, you know, we see some improvements in the overall you know functionality of how the ransomware uh operates. Uh and so you know, ransomware obviously a very devastating type of attack to suffer. Uh and so lots of technology has come out to try to identify that, to try to prevent that. And so, you know, what we've seen is ransomware are, you know. They're shifting their tactics to use what we call living off the land binaries. Um, to you know, we, we've seen ransomware attacks that are that are entirely script enc- encapsulated that use only Windows components to you know generate the two key pair for encryption, to index the files, to do the encryption, to generate the note. You know, all of that was done really without introducing any application to the environment. So uh, you know, we're starting to see you know those types of of tactics within the application itself, or within how ransomware is is um, uh, achieving its goal. But we've also seen shifts in in who ransomware off, uh, actors are targeting. Um, and so, for the last several years, uh, we, we and I think we'll continue to see this. But you know, focusing on the soft targets, things like government agencies, schools, hospitals. But oftentimes, those are are not very high paying targets, right? They don't. Hospitals don't have deep pockets. Local government agencies don't have deep pockets. Um, certainly, hospitals do not. You know, if they really want to haul in a bigger payload, um, what we started to see are, uh, pivots towards, uh, manufacturing. Um, and so getting into the middle of like a supply chain of manufacturing, a, you know, if you can interrupt the right thing, you then set people down, uh, stream from you and, and all of a sudden you have a, a maybe more motivation to pay quickly. So, you know, we see that, um, you know, with ransomware specifically in the past year, uh, definitely.
0: How about looking at the recent COVID vaccine cold chain attack? Do you see ransomware emerging there?
2: Yeah, you know that that's interesting, and, and certainly, I mean, oh boy, can you imagine if like Pfizer or like Moderna got uh, infected, they would probably pay. And you know, it's interesting. We saw some some really big ransomware payouts in this past year. Uh, you know, Garmin got hit in June, I believe, and they paid out ten million. And then we saw Foxconn get hit just a couple of weeks ago, and um, and they paid out thirty four million. And I, I was like, man, that's a lot of money. But I didn't realize actually how big of a company Foxconn is, and They they reportedly made, are in revenue uh, like 178 billion dollars last year, and of course revenue is not profit. But then when I started doing some math, I'm like, wait a second, 34 million dollars is like really small change to them. You know, Mm -hmm. like if you really wanted, why didn't you ask for like 100 million? (laughs) Like even 100 million for a company that makes 178 billion annually is, as again, it's like it's not as uh, I don't know. So I I honestly predict in 2021 we're going to see a 100 million or, or better ransom paid. I mean, I certainly expect like phishing campaigns and and these things to continue to use covid especially with the vaccine and um you know unfortunately, we're just not out of this mess yet, and you know cyber criminals definitely love newsworthy events, and we, we're just kind of living in this perpetual newsworthy event uh, that that they're gonna continue to exploit,
0: yeah, speaking of newsworthy event, solar winds has just completely taken over my Twitter feed.
2: Oh, I know, I tell you what my last week has been um it's been interesting and honestly, it's almost like uh. T- how did 2020 not end without this, right? So, like, there had to be some sort of cybersecurity, you know, nightmare that, uh, was on par with everything else in, in 2020. And, and man, if, they, if, if Winds isn't that, then I don't know what is. And, you know, it's, it's been interesting as we've looked, uh, and still, you know, there's a lot to learn. Um, and a lot of companies who, you know, are, are, who've certainly been impacted that, that haven't come clean about it. But to me, I think what, what's scary about this is, again, it's that, uh, it's the, the trust of somebody else, right? And, and, you know, SolarWinds had a lot of very big clients and, and they, those clients trusted that SolarWinds was protecting themselves against this type of an attack. And and like all too often in the past, you know, that that trust broke down and um, and cost a lot of people becoming compromised. Um, so, you know, it's, for what I find really interesting about this is like a that it, it went unnoticed by Solar Winds because, you know, what if we've had a, a little over a week now uh, to analyze the samples that are related and in some ways that, that what's nice about this is you know Solarwinds um, Orion network monitoring software is written in net and that's great for uh, analyzing analyzing the code because it's very easy to take net binaries and, and look at the source <clears> code um and so you know when we go and, and i mean Solarwinds is a big company right like they their uh, uh, Orion software has been out for a long time uh and so when we started going back and looking at all the variants of the um the specific DLL that got compromised, you can kind of see the timeline for when you know the the malicious class was entered into the DLL. Um, you know, so that actually happened in November of last year, um, and then it wasn't until March of this year that the the cl- the class basically was introduced. The namespace is introduced, but laid dormant and empty for for five months, and then. Uh, they, you know, the threat actors then, you know, introduced the malicious code. And so to me, it's like, okay, well, there was already, like, why did that happen? (laughs) Like, like, where's the QA process in here to, you know, to review these things? You know, so like, I I guess, like, in some ways, like, to me, it, it feels like almost like an inside job to some degree. Like, I, I, I'm not surprised, like, if attribution ends up being, you know, another nation state. Um, but, but I scratch my head. When I look at our internal development process, like, I just don't see how something like this could have happened. And I think it, it's causing a lot of security uh, software companies to to look internally and, and you know make sure that they haven't fallen victims to something similar. And really, like that's what we're kind of looking at. Again, we have to see what happens and, and what what's released. But um, it's looking like VMware may have also you know been compromised. And you know oh, yeah. if you think yeah. about you know what could be worse than a SolarWinds compromise, it would be a VMware like uh, sandbox escape vulnerability. And and to me, that would be. You know, that's probably, I'm like, what could be worse than that? You know, if you can imagine how reliant we are on VMware. Um,
0: yeah, Cisco was affected as well. I don't know if you saw that.
2: I, I did, I did. I mean, I, I saw this morning the list of people that they've now identified. They, they basically brute force the uh, the DGA for uh, the C2 server. So they can mm. see the various, um, uh, it's part of the URL string that they, they communicate back and forth with that contains the identifier for the company.
0: It'll be interesting to see how this investigation plays out and if we'll get to see any indictments.
2: Being under cyber espionage has not been this is not new, right? Like, um, I think from a federal agency perspective, the government's done a really poor job um, You know, going all the way back into the, the 2000s till now and providing proper punishment for for these types of attacks. Because, I mean, at this point, I mean, like, this was very much like cyber espionage, right? Like all these people wanted to do is was, was learn and, and take and listen. Um, The no ransomware is deployed, right? I mean, this is just a big listening operation. But, you know, I don't think there's a way to even put a dollar amount on the intellectual property loss that, um, you know, these companies um, have suffered. So, you know, supply chain is certainly something that uh, I think we're all going to look very closely at as as we move forward into 2021 and beyond.
0: I've taken notice to an increase in attackers abusing law bins. Could you explain what a law bin is and how attackers can leverage law bins in fileless attacks?
2: Yeah, exactly. So like these are they're called living off the land binaries. And, and so living off the land is a technique that's been popular for uh, several years now. But, you know, so much technology is focused on you know, how something new is introduced. But sometimes nothing new is introduced, and and really all you're using is the embedded functionality within Windows. Um, so if you think about, so like the, there's actually a very long list of of what we call lull bins that can be used as part of an attack to achieve um, you know the goal of the attacker. Um, and probably the most notorious would be PowerShell. And you know, we always advocate that if you don't need PowerShell, then disable it for your users because that application itself has so much capability. And so others are like script interpreters um so you know some of the scripting languages that are supported natively by Windows <laughs> you have like WMI so the Windows management um interface uh or instrumentation and, and 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 this again gives you just lots of flexibility into setting policies and and basically I mean through these tools and there's several others like you you can you can build an entire executable on the device uh, without ever having to say uh, extract it from You know, website or uh, getting it there some other way. And and so, you know, I think what's, what's challenging about this is that these are all good processes. You know, they're digitally signed by Microsoft. They are, they are, you know, for all intents and purposes, a good application that then could be used for malicious purpose. Uh, and so what we're starting to see is, you know, I talked a little bit about this with how ransomware is, is taking advantage of these, um, to, right, to to fly under the radar. Um, and so I think industry has been faced with the challenge of how do we, a have the proper visibility into you know, these applications and you know how do we uh you know, properly secure uh, them you know, for the proper use and detect the malicious use and so so we've seen a lot of innovation in that in that space um particularly around like script detection and improper you know it's almost like heuristics it's like you know should should java write an application application to you know an app data temp directory you know or should WinWord be allowed to you know open up powershell and download a file and so there's lots of like ways that we see commonality in, in how these things are used, but a lot of technology still doesn't have the visibility into them. So um, without that, you, you're kind of at risk to attacks that, that take advantage of wall bins.
0: I see. It sounds as if detection could certainly be a challenge there.
2: It it can be. Absolutely.
0: Would ML or a UBA based tool help with detection?
2: Yeah, I think like, um, ML can help to some degree. I mean, so, well, part of what we've been looking at is just the variety of command, uh, data that comes through these types of applications. And so, you know, we have things that we look for that we say, like, PowerShell shouldn't be allowed to do this, you know, or WScript shouldn't be allowed to do this. And so, you know, for us, it, we've been really looking at, um, there's a lot of commonality as a thing. And so I guess in some cases, or in a lot of cases in cybercrime, Code reuse is a pretty common thing. And so, you know, somebody figured out a way to do it and then, you know, copy and paste types of attacks. And so, uh, even though, you know, things could be easily obfuscated or changed, um, you know, we see a lot of that, but, but I also think like, yeah, UBA is, is understanding like, what should something be doing? And when is it outside of its expected behavior? Um, and then how do you then ultimately provide protection? So, okay, something is now done something wrong. Is, is it too late? Do I have to have a reaction plan or, you know, was this something I was able to? stop preventively. So I think that, you know, when we look at, you know, more on the definition side of an approach to, okay, like this, this type of command shouldn't be executed. That's easy to do. But when you look at, you know, behavior and analytics, you know, sometimes that's after the fact and it's like, okay, (laughs) this thing was outside of its bound. Uh Uh-oh, something has happened, right? As opposed to, no, you're not allowed to do this. So, you know, I think it's somewhere in the middle. And I absolutely think ML is going to play a big role in this. Again, the, the challenge here is like sifting through the big data. And I think that's really where ML you know, shines. So I expect that type of uh, technology to uh, refine and strengthen these solutions.
0: Got it. Well, staying on the topic of AI, I've always been fascinated with deep fake technology, although you don't typically see it being used by attackers. Why do you think that is? And when do you think we will start seeing deep fake attacks?
2: Yeah, so I couldn't agree more. I think deepfakes are are fascinating. They're they're also frightening. Um, humans, obviously, wired to see and hear and trust, and and when that can be manipulated so you know easily to have people to you know, obviously, say things that they didn't really say. Uh, so you know, so far we've largely seen this for you know for misinformation or, or for comedy, and, and unfortunately, I think it's going to start making its way into into compromises. And really, where I see this is um, not, not necessarily with video deepfakes, but with audio deepfakes. Um, and, and one of the biggest uh, threats that we we continue to see, and talk a lot about this for what I expect in 2021, but this is certainly one of the big ones. Is, is um, you know business email compromise uh, is a really costly. Type of attack and and it's a largely social engineering attack and you know it, it costs U.S. businesses north of two billion dollars in, in 2020 uh, and mm-hmm. I have no doubt that that's going to grow in 2021. Um, but but you know to combat that, what businesses are doing is they're they're increasing verification processes. They're having a second set of eyes. There might be a hey, get a, get on the phone with the CFO and, and make sure that um you know you have authorization and everything is right. Uh, and so th- I, it's almost in that space that I see fakes being used and. I, there's a um i forget the name of the, the 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 site that does this but you you can upload um a small amount of of audio recording and it can generate a an audio model that you can then you know type into and it will speak
0: yeah i think it's called liarbird and it used to be open source if i'm not mistaken
2: yeah yeah and it doesn't take much right so like yeah. i mean if you imagine like okay cfo's and these types of people might not be too hard you know if they're like a public company you can listen to their you know to their quarterly you know, investor briefing. And you know, there alone you're gonna have the audio that you probably need to get any of the C levels that you might target. So I, I look at that as being something that, you know, is a way that we might see deep fake technology used to facilitate a business email compromise type of attack. But what I also think is cool is like there's a lot of great technology that that helps you identify is it a deep fake. Tech can very easily spot deep fakes, but I think it's like how do we get the tech in the right spot? So like for example, like it, it's easy to tell if it's a doctored audio. But how do you get that audio stream through something that detects it and it alerts the CFO that or that Mm. the person in finance that they're actually not talking to, you know, or that there's something fishy about this? And of course, then there's false positives in these things as well, and it's you know it's it's not going to be a perfect thing. But I do think technology has a a role to play in protecting against misinformation, disinformation, and deep fakes.
0: So personally, I'm not aware of any specific technology that can detect deep fakes. Do you happen to know the name of one?
2: So I actually, I saw a couple of uh, presentations at Black Hat last year that, that looked at this. Um, and I, I just, I, I don't remember off the top of my head, but, um, they, they actually looked at, uh, using, uh, they trained mice to detect, uh, deep fake audio. Oh, wow. Which is really interesting about how, <laughs> how they, they went about this. But there were some neuroscientists from, uh, I think Stanford University. And they, they basically showed how, well, they, they showed lots of different things. But one of the things that they, they showed was that, um, they just, when they broke down language into small pieces, That, um, that mice would react differently to the doctored versus the, the normal. And it was really interesting. I mean, it was, it was, it was, I mean, some very smart people, but, uh, that was one approach to it. But, but also, I mean, just looking at the stream of data, um, and, and, you know, when, when something has been doctored by AI, um, it, there are, there are markers of that and, um, you know, the consistency of, of, of how certain things are done that are just not completely natural to uh, how humans speak.
0: Yeah, it's becoming so good.
2: I'm very nervous about how this is going to unfold for, you know, just because I think misinformation is a a huge threat to society. You know, I think there's technology has a role to play to, you know, at least identify things like deep fakes. But, you know, I I just found it interesting going through like this, this election season and, um, you know, how like. You know, social media gets thrown under the bus and has to tag misinformation, but then mainstream media, you know, spreads a lot of misinformation too. But nobody has to like tag any story on their site, and, and it's like, okay, well, at some point, we're going to have to have a reconciliation here, and you have to figure out, you know, how do we how do we validate information so that we can inform ourselves without being misled. And yikes, it's uh, I think it's going to be it's a big challenge to solve.
0: Oh, Oh, one hundred percent. So I want to ask you about iOS and Android. What does your prediction look like for mobile threats in the coming year?
2: Yeah, so I think, uh, you know, iOS certainly had sort of a a 2020 moment um, this year. Uh, And I guess maybe just to uh, rewind a bit from that is, uh, you know, we're, we're, I guess, entering what year 13 now of, of the smartphone era. Um and and iOS and Android have, you know, obviously our lives are very different today than they were before our smartphones. But unfortunately, like the security track record of, of both Android and iOS is not great. Uh and I remember, you know, going back all the way to like 2010, you know, every year at Black Hat there would be some new just devastating exploit for Android. And it would just, you know, blow away any of the security protocols that were there. You know, you could very easily root the device or uh, you know, install an app that could root the device, and uh, very, very easy to own the devices. Um, and here we are today, all these years later, and you know, we continue to see you know security to be a, a very big challenge on these devices. And and iOS uh, or Apple will probably tell you that you know they're extremely secure. And but the reality is, is like you know, we we just continue to see some very dangerous exploits. And you know, one that uh, was discovered and disclosed by Google's Project Zero. Um, was a, a radio proximity exploit for iOS um, that that took advantage of um, the iOS mesh network uh, protocol which is something that's like proprietary for Apple devices um, but but it helps them communicate with one another and it's on by default and so you know one researcher over the course of six months basically built a, uh, an exploit that um you know if you were next to his device would uh own your device a, a, without mm-hmm. any user interaction um and, and like on the google project zero blog it's a fantastic blog by the way you know at the very top there's a video that just basically shows it and he's got i think 30 different ios uh, I, uh, iPhones from like i think like 2015 to current day and like he runs the thing and you just watch them all within Like 10 seconds, they all reboot. Wow. That's crazy. (laughs) Like, whoa. Right. (laughs) Right. And then through that, he can install remote, like, you know, so, and and so this is one researcher, right? So you can imagine nation states, they look at mobile devices as, you know, the, the goal to, you know, if they could infect one thing, it's going to be the mobile device of their target because obviously, you know, you don't have to explain to your users, you know, what mobile devices (laughs) do, but, you know, it's obvious if you, if you can compromise that you have, you know, it's a spy's like, you know, (laughs) uh, you know, happiest dream. So, uh, so I think like from like a platform perspective, you know, there's a lot of vulnerabilities still. Um, but then we also look at like the app space and, uh, maybe I'll, I'll pick on Android here instead of iOS, but, you know uh, th- there's a what we call the joker um malware on android that that's been pretty prevalent over the past couple of years um there've been several 100,000 plus installs removed from google play uh and often i mean these are just malicious apps that um you know they like the app space is really cluttered and so there's you know uh, a thousand different flashlight apps um but uh you know what they try to do is they go after what's popular and they create you know bare bones kind of app that kind of you know does yeah it's a little flashlight or some other app like this uh, but then it, cre- it contains like a um a uh an advertising platform uh, that contains joker and then you know slowly over the next like you know several weeks of installation uh, components of joker are then downloaded through that app uh and ultimately what it does is it spies on the device and uh then it it monetizes through uh signing you up through like premium services and so it will either you know buy other apps that uh, are part of their network that costs money, or it will uh, sign you up for recurring services. So uh, you know it, it, that's like a, just one example. I mean, we we see. Um, you know, I think maybe the other thing I'm most concerned with on uh, on the mobile front is um, just the prevalence of what I call spy phone apps. Um, and, and these are often things like you know track your kids or you know um, remote monitoring software for the phone. Um, and oftentimes it's installed covertly. Uh, it's difficult to remove. Um, and then it then it you know can report everything that you do with your device um so you know we see a lot of that like when we look at webroot also has a mobile a mobile solution and when we look at you know what do we see what do we detect the most in the wild uh, it's definitely those types
0: of apps nice yeah i didn't know webroot had a mobile solution
2: yeah, actually, what's kind of cool about it is, um, you know, so when you think about the mobile device, like Google continues to really lock down, they're, they're trying to fix security. Um, but really, like the internet browser is one the, really one of the areas that we see, see prime for exploitation. And, you know, that could be landing on a phishing site or, you know, be being misled some way. Um, and so our latest release, um, actually we pivot away from being an, like an app itself and we, we were basically built on the Chromium stack. So uh, the benefit of that is like you can use Google Chrome browser and we can still then uh, protect that browsing experience. Uh, and then, of course, it, it, you know, it protects as far as uh, malicious apps. But um, the amount of malicious apps we see uh, on mobile devices compared to malware on PCs is still you know, a tiny fraction. Um, but, but we really look at the, the browsing component is what we want to secure.
0: So uh, it provides both. Gotcha. Yeah, I'm always getting asked, is Apple more secure than Android devices?
2: Apple is more secure, um, but I don't say I don't think it's by like a large like amount and I think I mean if if you look at Apple's uh, patch notes for all of their you know recent releases they've been you know there's a lot of security that they're constantly fixing um, I think the application space for apple is is better because it's so uh, controlled right like it has to be um, an apple certified signed app to to run in um, and Android you know it's very easy to install. You know, apps from anywhere. So I think it's kind of like the flexibility of what you get. Um, I think the the app landscape for Android is more diverse than for iOS, um, but maybe iOS is a bit more secure just from the app space.
0: Understood. So Grayson, you're located out in the Denver area, right?
2: Yeah, uh, uh, Webroot's headquarters is actually in Broomfield, which is about uh, 15 miles northwest of Denver.
0: Nice, nice. So let's talk about the bar landscape. What's the best bar to go to out there?
2: Oh man, uh, they're like, so Colorado is like, we're really begging to craft brew or beers. And so there's actually a lot of great restaurant bars that uh, you can go in and have, uh, um, let's see, like the Boulder Beer Company, there's Avery Brewery, you know, they, they're great that you go in, you can you try lots of different beers and then they, they have tours that'll take you through the brewery house. That's kind of fun to do.
0: Oh, nice. So a lot of breweries. I know Coors is out there. Who else is out there?
2: We have a... Uh, like lots of really small brews so it's like you know lots of micro brews um Got i think it. i mean there's so many um but but if you want maybe more of like a traditional bar uh there is a place called the burns pub and restaurant that's really famous in broomfield um and it's right up by the uh, the rocky mountain metropolitan airport and and it is a fantastic uh scotch bar and they have some of the, the greatest old whiskies and you know a menu of of drinks that's several pages long um and, and fantastic food as well so Typically, when we have people out from at least to the office, uh, it's right next to our office. So um,
0: that's often a a really great place to go as well. Sweet. So, when you go out to a bar, what is your drink of choice?
2: Uh, I like beer. (laughs) You know, um, (laughs) there's so many great microbreweries out here. Um, You know, uh, we have several different tap houses that, uh, you know, it's just nice to, to try the variety. So, I'm kind of a beer guy.
0: So, it's last call here barcode. So, I have one final question for you. If you opened a cybersecurity themed bar, what would the name be and what would your signature drink be called?
2: Oh, my goodness. That's a hard question. <laughs> um, <laughs> I, what would I call my bar? I, I call it. Oh, man. Um, OK, maybe it could be like the malicious mixer. Nice. I, OK, so that could be the bar name. And then, and then we'd have like a variety of different like like now we're themed drinks so we can have like the like the trojan horse like the, the you know the ransomware uh the spyware <laughs> these could be like different <laughs> different cocktails of you know <laughs> of some sort
0: nice as long as you don't get infected
2: well you get infected but just you know with with the warm fuzzy feeling of, of alcohol
0: <laughs> it evades all defensive controls
2: <laughs> <laughs> indeed indeed
0: all right well grace and i appreciate your time thank you so much for speaking with me and discussing your approach and mindset to infosec
2: chris to you thanks for reaching out and uh you know this is a lot of fun i you know i love talking about cybersecurity, and um you know perhaps uh i'll get to do it one of these again in the future
0: definitely next time let's catch up at a real bar
2: hey you got it
0: barcode patrons if you enjoyed this episode and want an easy way to support the podcast please leave me a review on itunes or apple Podcasts. if you're not on a mac or iphone just visit the barcode slash reviews i appreciate all the support cheers
1: unfortunately it's time to shut the bar down for this episode thanks for stopping in see you next time we'll save you a seat be sure to check us out at the Barcodepodcast.com.